We are on our final week uh, of a series on the theology, on theology proper. We started um, about four months ago, back in February. <laughs> so four weeks and four months, pretty good. Um, last week we did a, a recap on those first, uh, the, the first two weeks back in February, and then we looked at um, the, the glorious self-revelation of, of God in, in Exodus uh, 34 and the attributes that God proclaimed to Moses. Again, the, the attributes of God refer to the, the perfectness of His being, which are declared in, to us in Scripture or put on display in creation and providence and in redemption. Uh, when we're studying theology, you know, we want our goal here it, to have a right concept and a knowledge of God because that's the foundation to our Christian living. You know, again, out of the study of theology, we're led to true doctrine, which leads to true doxology or true worship. And that's been our goal over these past four sessions is to get a better understanding of God so that we might truly worship Him and glorify Him in our lives. Uh, On this final week, we'll be looking at the refuge we have in the Lord and in His character out of Psalms 11, having a correct knowledge and understanding of God and His attributes. uh, We can have a firm ground to stand on when all around us seems like it's giving away or it's being destroyed. And that's exactly where David found himself uh, in, psalm, in this psalm. And so if you find yourself in a similar situation, or if you see what's happening in the society kind of all around us, um, this message will be an encouragement to you. But let's pray before we begin. Gracious and merciful Father, Lord, you are our refuge. I pray that we would be renewed in our, um, in our strength and in our spirit as we study this chapter in, in the psalms, Lord, that we... Um, who are here today that are struggling, Lord, really all of us uh, really would be, have a right understanding of the character of God and the way that David displayed, Lord, so that we might have a stable foundation, Lord, to, where we can firmly plant our feet. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying through, through Scripture today, Lord, may we be found in awe of who you are, Lord, so that we might grow in our knowledge of you and, and to love you all the more, to worship you all the more, Lord, to pursue you all the more. I pray this in your most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so turn with me to uh, Psalms 11. And starting at the very beginning, it says that um, the title is To the Choir Master of David. Now, in some of these psalms, we get context. um, And here in in this, this is all the context we're given. You know, unlike last week when Jeremy talked, uh, walked us through Psalms uh, 63, there was a very specific theme, a very specific instance um, in that psalm um, that led David to, to pin those words as they flowed out of his heart. And now there is a specific instance uh, in, uh, in this psalm as well, uh, but the Lord in his wisdom uh, didn't pr- see fit to provide that for us. So we're given, this is hit the, uh, the title there. Well, let's read with me. So, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heavens. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. 
the upright shall behold his face. Again, we're not given the occasion for this psalms, but we can tell by reading it that it sounds awfully close to a lament. However, we don't find in here a plea to the Lord for help. What we can find is, is David's courage and confidence in the face of calamity. And those are going to be the three sections that we look at. It's going to be the, the courage of David, the calamity surrounding David, and the confidence in the character of the Lord. So David pins this psalm uh, because of personal and societal calamity. I think at the crux of the calamity uh, around David, he asked this question in verse 3. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So whatever's going on around David, he felt like that the foundations were being destroyed. And all that should have been firm and stable was crumbling. Uh, I want to start by examining David's courage in the face of such calamity. He starts out this psalm with a statement of courage and confidence in the Lord. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. You know, before we're told anything about what's going on in David's life, he wants to make it clear where he finds his refuge, his hiding place, his comfort, his shelter, and his joy. It's grounded in the covenant name of the Lord, as Yahweh. And remember last week we talked about um, uh, the name, that, that this name of the Lord encompasses the aseity of God, his self-sufficiency, his, uh, his infiniteness, his eternality, his independence. Uh, you know, this independent and infinite God is the chief refuge for David and for anyone who faces calamity, trials, or suffering. You know, the covenant name of the Lord should remind us of his faithfulness and his steadfast, co- and his steadfast covenant with his people. So all that he has promised... And all that he purposed, he will bring about. The taking refuge in a covenant-keeping God is often described in the Psalms as a blessed or a joyful place to be. So look with me, just flip to the left a little bit at Psalms 2. At the very end of the Psalms, in, in verse 12, um, David writes, or the psalmist writes, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And flipping just going to chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, we read, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and cover him with favor as with a shield. All right, now flip to the back of the psalm in Psalms 118. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Psalms 118, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist again writes, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. David knows the joy and security and trust it has when he takes refuge in the Lord. And this is where he finds his courage. Courage he needs uh, because of the calamity around him. Remember, this is David we're talking about, the, the mighty warrior David, who, when he was a shepherd boy, he was the one who slew the giant with nothing but a stone. And before that, when he, while he was shepherding his sheep, he would kill bears and lions when they came at uh, his sheep and attacked them. You know, he was the, the king who led armies against other nations and was victorious. Yeah. And he, of all people, could have taken refuge in his own strength or the strength of his horses and his armies or maybe even the treasures and the spoils uh, that he had gained from conquered armies. But we find out here that this is not where his trust and his refuge was. Whatever was going on around him, 
he made it plainly known from the very beginning that his trust and his refuge was in his Lord. He wasted no time in declaring that, declaring his dependence on the Lord. And so this is what he wants us to know first and foremost. May we all learn to respond with the same courage when we face trials or look at the corruption and destruction around us. May we have the, the, find the joy and be able to rejoice in our refuge, who, is a, who was the Lord when calamity strikes. All right, now looking at the calamity, you know, we see the calamity around us today, but David also was experiencing calamity around him. Uh, he writes uh, back in Psalms 11, where we are, starting in verse 2, it says, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string, they shoot in the dark at the upright and heart. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And see, whatever was happening around him, his counselors were encouraging him to flee, to run away, to get out of harm's way. And for whatever reason, in this instance, it is not the time to flee. He says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? You know, there, are, there were times in David's life where that was good counsel. You know, he fled into the wilderness when Saul was chasing after him. You know, we saw from Psalm 63 that he fled from the city again when Absalom, his son, came to take the, the throne by force. But during this trial, when he was again tempted to flee in the face of terror, you know, this bird here is not mentioned, is not like the mighty eagle that spreads his wings and flies with renewed strength like is pictured in Isaiah 40. Instead, it's like a small sparrow that's easily scared off by a passing disturbance. You know, think of like the, the birds um, you pass by as you drive uh, on the streets that, you know, as soon as they see a car coming, you know, they immediately take flight in face of a, a supposed danger. You know, we can also be like that. You know, we might want to, to pursue comfort um, so much so that we fly at the slightest hint of danger or difficulty. You know, that can look like a, a refusal to acknowledge even that the issue is present. Um, fleeing from it mentally just by like, not thinking it through and assuming maybe eventually it will go away. You know, fleeing uh, for, you know, it could look like a physical separation between you and whatever's causing pain and discomfort. Fleeing could look like uh, drowning the difficulty in, in medication, drugs, drunkenness, or even a pursuit of pleasure. Um, some think it's easier to, to run away from the fear or the pain than remain steadfast and face what's coming up. Those who turn to escapes forget where their foundation is and what kind of God we have. Where do you take refuge when calamity comes your way? I pray that we can learn from David here that we'll soon see that the source of the confidence that David had and as he was able to face the calamity head on. Again, David's counselors were encouraging him to flee. And at that time, his actions would be such that to, uh, to flee would betray his faith and the courage that he has in the Lord. Sometimes fleeing in the face of calamity makes the issue bigger than God, makes it more than you think he can handle. In verse 2, the, the occasion for the calamity, it says, For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrows to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright and heart. The wicked were close at hand with their bow and their arrow, ready to attack. In Psalms 64.3, this says that the wicked wet their tongues like swords and aim bitter words like arrows. You 
You know, in this psalm, it says the wicked here are attacking with, with bitter words. Words, I think, do, in fact, and, and can, in fact, hurt. And maybe it's a, a slanderous post online or a lie regarding your character, even gossip you hear floating around about you. you know, whatever it might be for you and whatever it was here for David, they're encouraging him to flee from that present danger. You know, I think they could have been meaning well. You know, they might have thought that they were looking out for him. You know, and in their human counsel, it was to get out of there. But in David's eyes, he knows he cannot flee at this time and cries out and says, why do you say to flee? Again, the, the wicked, it says, are shooting in the dark. You know, they want to remain secret, hidden, um, from, hidden from sight, in ambush when it's least expected. You know, they aim for the upright in heart. The ones that they are out to, to target are those who are upright. Don't think that a life lived for Jesus or for his kingdom will be a, a pleasant and easy one without any trials or difficulty. You know, we're told over and over again to expect trials and sorrows. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 20, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As a Christian and a follower of Jesus, the enemy is out to attack you and do whatever they can to pull you away from a wholehearted and steadfast pursuit of Jesus. I think when we're aware of that, it's easier um, to resist him, and it's easier to cling to the Lord when we know that the, we have an enemy who is out to shoot at the upright in heart. We see in verse 3 that the enemy doesn't just attack the upright in heart. It goes for the foundation of society. And David says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the upright do? Or can the righteous do? I think, too, that there is a progression, it seems, in the scope of this calamity. You know, David says in verse 1, it says, why do you say to my soul? In verse 2, it says, it's the upright in heart that are targeted. And in here in verse 3, David sees the calamity as infecting the entire foundation. You know, here are some examples of what the foundation of society consists of. It's the, the rule of law. It's families. It's mothers and fathers together raising their kids. It's marriage, it's education, and government. The, all of these encompass uh, the, the foundation of society. And in David's times, there, we, he was seeing corruption, so much so that it was being destroyed. I think we can also see uh, just moral corruption around us uh, as evil is called good, and good is silenced like it's evil. We see in our society targeting of our children, at, um, trying to push that sexual agenda to younger and younger ages. You know, marriage, as God intends it to be, has been undermined, not just by saying that men can marry other men or women can marry other women, um, but upholding that as something that the society says is good and should be applauded by all. I even read on Friday um, that the California Senate uh, passed a bill where they said that any industry, employees in any industry, are forbidden from approaching anyone suspected of shoplifting. They're no longer allowed to stop them. Even security guards and theft prevention teams who have been trained are, are not allowed to do that. Lawlessness is increasing, and even like being encouraged, it seems like. Uh, hopefully that the, the, the state assembly in California doesn't pass it and send it to the governor. Uh, we can pray for that. But it seems like society all around us is descending into chaos and calamity. And so David cries out, what can the righteous do? And that can be David's question, and it's ours as well. Um, so why do we suffer trials like sickness, or sorrow, or pain? 
why does God allow such horrific evil to seemingly go unpunished or unchecked? And so, you know, we looked at, you know, the Lord and His sovereignty and His will and His power and said, you know, isn't the Lord in control of all things? David asked these questions rhetorically because he was about to go into his confidence in the Lord, and we'll also address some of those questions later. But in the midst of the calamity that David sees around him against the upright in heart, even just amongst his counselors who tempt him to flee in face of that fear, his confidence remains in the Lord. He sees the situation through a different lens. He sees, sees the issue, he sees the issue at hand, but behind that he sees the Lord. Oh, how I pray that we too, when we're drowning, we wouldn't be drowning in discouragement or doubt when trials arise. That the strength to remain steadfast is found in the Lord and his character. So read with me in um, Psalms 11, 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, and fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. When faced with fears and the counsel to flee, David looks to the Lord. He's already told us from the beginning his refuge is in the Lord. Now in verse 4, he expounds on his confidence in the Lord. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. David sees the Lord as the exalted one. Again, the temple is where God's presence resided. His temple was a focal point of worship. It's described as holy. In the temple, the Lord's presence was in the holy of holies. David's confidence starts with the holiness of God. Where God is um, in his holiness is the one who is absolutely distinct from creation and all creatures and exalted above them in infinite majesty and to whom one all worship is due. So when David here is faced with the personal trials in his life or the ones plaguing society, his confidence and his worship are focused on the holiness of the Lord. He says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Next, David's confidence is found in the sovereign rule of the Lord. And when he looks to the Lord seated on his throne, where he rules, where he not only rules, but he also judges, as we will see later. The throne room in heaven, where God rules supremely over all, is untouched, unmoved, unmarred, and unfazed by human events and the cunning schemes of the enemy. Let's go back to Psalms 2, and we're going to be reading 1 through 4. It starts, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them all in derision. The plans of the nation cannot thwart God's plans or purposes. You know, think back what we said over the past couple of weeks of the, so the sovereignty of the Lord. It is his exercise, it is the exercise of, of his power or rule as a sovereign or king over all of his creation. And again, we know that God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I want to look at uh, uh, Revelation 4 
uh, at the throne room and that is put on glorious display. So turn with me there and we'll read Revelation 4. As David was facing calamity, his confidence was in the Lord, he said, who sits The Lord's throne is in heaven. Let's, let's look at this picture of, this, uh, of the, the throne room of God that was shown to John uh, here in Revelation, starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of uh, of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the seventh living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, day and night, never ceasing to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him uh, who was seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's just a brief glimpse of the colorful and glorious throne of the sovereign, holy creator who rules and judges all. Now, he alone is the one to whom all worship is due. And I think if you want to take a deeper look at that chapter, Keith Christensen preached in just an amazing sermon. It might have been a sermon series, um, but you can find that either on the website or on the app. And I'd encourage you guys to go back and listen to that. And just a a glorious picture of this, uh, the one seated on the throne room seated on the throne in heaven. I hope you see that meditating on, on God's sovereign rule from his heavenly throne can bring stability to our minds as, as you witness just the crumbling of the foundation around us. Back in Psalms 11, we read, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord is the all-seeing and all-knowing God. This is a part of his omniscience. He sees the wicked. He sees the righteous. This idea is of a discerning and penetrating gaze. He sees the wicked and their actions in the supposed darkness. In vain do the wicked try to hide uh, from the Lord. Darkness cannot hide them. They're always exposed to the one who sees all things and knows all things. I'm going to talk about omniscience of the Lord for a little bit and just flush that out. Uh, The definition from uh, Grudem's systematic theology is omniscience means that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. 
In 1 Corinthians 2, 10 11, it says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's sought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So, so also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So only the Spirit can fully comprehend the mind of God. Therefore, we can say that God possesses, possesses perfect and complete knowledge and has no need to learn. In fact, he has, he's never learned, and nor could he learn anything new. For if he did, that would mean that at one point he did not know it and therefore would not be omniscient. He knows instantly and with perfection everything in the past, everything in the present, and in the future. By saying he knows all things actual, it means that he knows all things that exist and all things that will happen, um, like from the remote jungles to the depths of the sea to the furthest galaxy. The Lord knows it all and, and what's going on there and what will go on there. We also say that he knows all things possible. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, uh, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works done in you have been, if the mighty works done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have, been, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He says he knows the possibility of what could happen. He said that they could um, have um, repented if Jesus' miracles were done in that time. I think just the, the fact that he knows all things that would have happened as well as all things that do happen and will happen, I think it's just truly amazing. He sees them all as well in, in it says one simple and eternal act. And simple meaning not made up of many parts. Um, remember, and, and we say of God himself that he is not a, um, a composite being made up of many attributes. And it's the same thing here. God sees all events as a whole. Um, he's not like a computer hard drive where all this knowledge is stored. He has to go access it when he needs it. Uh, I also thought of like the, you know, the, the movie Pixar, um, Inside Out, with all the little emotions and the, the thoughts that are on those little orbs where they can, they can recall them and bring them up one at a time and set them there. Like, that's not how God is. That's not how God sees all things. <laughs> he sees all things together at, at once. Um, and really, if, if it's hard to understand, it's, it's hard for me to grasp that as well, how the Lord sees all things actual and possible from, from beginning to the end all at once. But that's just an amazing uh, attribute of the omniscience uh, of God. He knows all things. And, and we also can say that uh, God knows and, th- and sees all things not in a different kind of way, not in a different kind of logic than us. I think if we were to say that it was different in kind, um, then that would call into question everything in Scripture. Because we couldn't be uh, known we, uh, that his logic is not like ours. I think rather we can say that his knowledge and his logic is, not diff- is different than ours by degrees, not by kind. Uh, we can affirm this truth like Isaiah said in 50, Isaiah 55, 14 and 15. He says, for your thoughts, or my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the, high, as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, he knows all things from the beginning to the end, and there is is nothing that would ever um, catch him by surprise or catch him off guard. Now, while we might feel like a subtle or sometimes not so subtle subtle shift in the foundation, God sees it exactly, happening exactly as the way he knew it would and even the way he allowed it to, to happen. 
he doesn't just also know dates and facts and events. He knows individuals. He knows their thoughts. He knows their, your minds, your intents. He knows the heart of every human being born and ever to be born. Let's turn with me to Psalms 139, and we're going to read 139, starting in verse 15. This is the Lord knowing individuals. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, Yet, when yet as was there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If, if I would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Because God is present everywhere, omnipresent, and knows all things, omniscient. David can say with confidence that God sees all men. He knows our deepest fears, our deepest thoughts, and even our darkest sin. Nothing is hidden from his searching and piercing gaze. And this can be a terror for some who want to keep their sins secret. God is watching every action, knows every word you speak, knows the thoughts that run through your mind. It says that the wicked that bend their bow and ready their arrows to shoot in the upright in heart, are not unseen from God. They're not hidden from his sight. We can say like Hebrews in Hebrews 14, 3, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we will all have to stand before God who sees all and give uh, to him an account of everything we've ever done, everything ever said or even thought. But like, I think there can be a comfort looking back at Psalms 139, that God who knows every deed and thinks about us with thoughts in, um, in, innumerable, and he still he came to the earth. He still took our place and still paid for every sin that he knew we would commit and credit to us his very own righteousness. What a two-edged sword God's omniscience is. It brings comfort to some and terror to others. When you meditate on this, now, I've been praying that it would be, we'd have confidence like David in the face of fears and trials and his suffering, knowing that nothing is outside of God's sight or his knowledge. Back to Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. You know, because we know that the Lord sees and knows all, the next step would be that he knows precisely what is necessary to shape us into his image. That is what this testing produces. These trials and sufferings have a potential to be a sh shaping influences in our lives. And I say potential because we do have to submit to the Lord uh, and to his hand and his shaping influence of us. And when we do that, and he, you know, he thinks of a, a crafts us like a potter who crafts a vessel or a, a jeweler producing pure and precious metals. And I think failing to submit to the shaping influence of the Lord leads to all kinds of issues. I, think, I thought of just a silly, silly example of, of a potter who's working with a lump of clay and the, and the clay is actively fighting against what the Lord is trying to do and he's shaping this into a vessel that exactly what he wants. It's like, I don't want to be shaped like that. 
Think how, how, long, how much longer it takes for the Lord to, to, to work through a, a, a hard heart to, to truly shape him into what he wants to shape him into. And I know that breaks down quickly. I think you get the picture. <laughs> um, in Genesis 22, uh, God was said to test Abraham when he commanded him to offer up his only son as a, as, as a sacrifice. I think Job was also tried in the most extreme ways. And in Job 23.10, he says, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So Job sur- surrendering himself to the Lord, um, knowing that his sovereign work was purifying him. I think to, to purify gold, you know, there's tiny flakes or, or nuggets that are found in ore. They're, they're smelted at high temperatures, uh, and in the solution, the gold is, is more dense, so it falls to the bottom and rises to the top. Um, is, is the dross that is, is there any impurities that are scraped away and removed. Uh, Psalms 12 says that the, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So, so there, the, the, the heating and the removal cycle takes you know, seven times. It's a sign of perfection. And that's the, talking about the, Lord, the, 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 the words of the Lord. But we know the testing in our lives is a process that's repeated uh, over and over again. Um, as, as the dross rives, there's more impurities scraped away. And then we are, God gives us a break. And then it brings another trial. And there's more impurities to come to remove those. And we will never be, uh, reach perfection in this, in this life. So this process never stops. But the end goal is a, is a pure and precious gold that brings glory to God. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who loved him. We know that the suffering and the trials that the Lord brings on us is an opportunity to trust him even more, and it's his chosen method to shape us. And again, it'll, it'll look differently for each and every one of us. David here uh, was saying that he could take refuge in the Lord because he knows that the Lord tests and shapes his children, working them into his image. You know, there are several attributes of the Lord at work in trials and testing, uh, his omniscience, his love, his will, his wisdom, his sovereignty. Uh, I'm going to repeat this quote from Jerry Bridges because I love it. It says, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom always knows what is best, and in his sovereignty has a power to bring it about. That's what the testing produces in those who love God and keep his commandments. Back to Job in, in, in chapter 23, he continues with this. He says, My foot was held fast to his steps. I have kept his ways and not turned aside, not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion for food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he has appointed for me. And, and many such things are in his mind. Remember, he's talking about the testing that the Lord is doing him. He says, many are such things are in his mind, and he will accomplish what he set, sets out to do. And when, we, when he holds fast to the commandments of the Lord and treasures his word above all else, and that, and that he looks to the unchangeableness of a God um, who will accomplish exactly what he has appointed, precisely what he has in mind. I think what a comfort this is during a trial, or really at any time. Because <laughs> if you're not in a trial now, rejoice, um, but prepare your heart. 
the Lord refines us in a variety of ways. Um, in some ways, it can cause us, in some ways that he uses, it can cause us to question um, what God is doing. You know, why would God allow such things to happen? This leads us to the providence of the Lord, which encompasses all of God's ongoing interaction and relationship with his creation. God is actively involved in all creation and events, and, and things are not left to chance. He's not just created the world and left it to itself. So looking at providence, the definition, I believe I put it in your, the handout, is God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties which would he created them, cooperates with things in every action, directing their distinct properties to cause them to act as they do, and directs them to, to fulfill his purposes. Now the three uh, subtopics of providence we're going to look at uh, real quick is pre- uh, preservation, concurrence, and government. God's providence in preserving all things with the same properties that he created them can be found in several scriptures. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 says that he is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe with the, by the word of his power. Other translations say that he sustains all things by the word of his power. The idea is an active sustaining of all things. It's purposeful. It's personal. Sustaining and upholding all things continually. And in Colossians 1.17, we see his continual influence. when it says, all, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, the, the Greek verb, verb form for hold is a perfect tense, meaning as the action occurred in the, uh, earlier, but the results are continuing today. And in both of these verses, they indicate the continual and sustaining power of Christ in all things. So if he were to um, cease from sustaining all things, they would stop existing. Uh, Because he continues to to sustain all things, they have the same property. That gives us a basis for all of the sciences. Um, And we can have the same results um, that are repeatable. Again, uh, regardless of it's uh, the one conducting the test is a believer or unbeliever, God maintains and sustains the properties of all things. Um, Light continues to act like light wherever we are. Water continues to act like water. The materials that make up this building, the the wood, the sheetrock, the metal, the the chairs, the carpet, they continue to, to, God maintains those atoms and the molecules for eternity, or not for eternity. (laughs) He he is maintaining them and sustaining them now. I think this is another way for believers to glorify God in such a way. When we drink water, we can glorify and thank the Lord for maintaining those water molecules to be beneficial for us. So the air that we breathe, that God maintains the properties of the air so that our bodies can take in the oxygen and exhale that, that carbon dioxide. And it's just an amazing way for, for that believers can, can, can glorify God. Looking at concurrence uh, in providence, it means that uh, God cooperates with things in every action, directing their distinct properties to cause them to act as they do. Ephesians 1.11 says that in him we have an attained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works out or implements all events, and no event is outside his control or his providence. And that's not ex- explicitly obvious when we look at nature around us. I think we must look at Scripture to understand this a bit better. And I'm going to read a few psalms uh, that, uh, that will help us understand this. Psalms 104, 14. 
you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring, bring forth food from the earth. Psalms 135, 6 and 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And in Psalms 148, 7 and 8, we read, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. We can see that from these three verses that God is, uh, is a cause behind growing grass and plants. He does whatever he pleases and causes the clouds and the lightning, the rain and the wind, the snow and the fire. Now, while we can explain how grass and plants grow from photosynthesis or using their roots to draw water out of the ground, uh, we see here that uh, God is behind that. Now, it is a providence of the Lord that he causes those to grow. And we can explain with like high pressures and low pressures behind the clouds and the wind and the rain and the snow. But scripture again shows us that it's because he commands them that they must fulfill his word. So God acts concurrently in all things. We also know from Matthew 6, 26, he tells us that he acts concurrently as he provides um, food for the birds of the air uh, and, and, and food for the animals in Psalms 104. Um, so naturally we would think that the animals are the ones foraging or hunting for their food, but yet God acts in such a way in his providence that he provides for them exactly what they need. Even the seemingly random uh, events, uh, the random things in life are controlled by God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The equivalent to a roll of a paradise. And we can see through Scripture, though, that his providence covers every action and event concurrently with, with what we can see and describe ourselves. God is the one behind it all. This can even be said of the evil things that happen in the world. While God is not the author of any evil, nor does he tempt anyone to sin, he does allow evil to happen in this world. And he can purpose it in such a way to allow it to bring about good for some and judgment on others. You know, back to the story of, of Moses being sold, and, excuse me, Joseph being sold into slavery by his brother, brothers. And in the end, when he speaks to them, he says to them, you meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. And when troubles arise, or you see everything happening around us, uh, we, have a, we can have a deeper assurance when we ponder that everything is under the providential control of God. And looking at the cross, we can see that God uses the sinfulness of men and their predestined acts to accomplish his work. Peter states this truth in Acts 2.23, and it says that God predestined, yet man is still responsible and are culpable for their own willful acts. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God can use the evil actions of men to bring about judgment on others. In Jeremiah 25, God uses Nebuchadnezzar, uh, whom he calls his servant, as an instrument to destroy Judah because of their disobedience. And a few verses later in 12, God states that he will also punish Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the, the nation for their own sins. They were doing the Lord's work in destroying Judah and taking the people captive, but they were still acting out of their own sinful will and responsible for that to the Lord. 
we are able to make willful choices, and those choices have real consequences. We've looked at the preservation and the concurrence of God and providence, uh, but let's finish this section looking at the, the government. Um, this is uh, the portion of the, the this, uh, definition where it says it directs him to fulfill his purpose. God has purpose, purposely planned all that happens in the world and governs them to accomplish and fulfill his purposes. We've already looked at several scriptures that affirm this reality, that God rules over all the, from, from heaven over all. He accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And that God has put all things in subjection under his feet, uh, in the, under the feet of Jesus. You know, and with this, in this in mind, we can confidently affirm with Paul what he said in Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. The Lord providentially governs every event that happens to accomplish his holy purpose. All right, with that tangent on providence of God completed, let's get back to Psalms 11. When he says, uh, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind be the portion of their cup. Here, David is confident that the Lord is a refuge in the face of calamity because he knows the Lord is a God of just wrath towards sin and sinners. The wrath of God is is spoken about a lot in Scripture, more than we might hear about. Uh, God is by no means ashamed or apologetic about his wrath towards sinners. His wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. And we see in this verse that the Lord hates the wicked. Because we know that God is unified, his wrath is in perfect harmony with his love and all of his other attributes. And we saw from Exodus 32.9 last week that God's wrath burned against his people when they turned from him. Similarly, in Romans 1.18, we see that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. The wrath and the hatred of the Lord is on those who love violence. Nothing is more contrary to the Lord and his holy character than to love violence and wickedness. There are more references to wrath, fury, and, and the anger of God in Scripture than are into his love and tenderness, A.W. Pink says in his book on the attributes of God. And I did a search myself in a concordance and found that there are 488 um, references in Scripture, general references, to wrath, anger, and fury. And there are uh, 282 references to love and tenderness. I think the wrath of God is a serious attribute that we should not overlook. Since the Lord is holy and separate from sin, he must have a holy and righteous wrath towards anything that's against his character. I think to be indifferent to sin or to look the other way and just uh, wipe it away in this supposed love uh, would mean that he is not just in upholding what is righteous and good and pure. Uh, since we affirm the holiness uh, and the wrath of the Lord, we also have, have to uphold the necessity of heaven and hell. Uh, in hell, the justice and wrath of God are said to be present with the sinner eternally. Revelation 14.10 says it like this, He, that is a sinner, will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
The sinner here is punished eternally and suffers in the presence of the wrath of God. Hell is not the absence of God. It is the absence of all of God's grace and His goodness and in the full presence of His wrath. We see a similar picture of, the, of God's wrath described as a cup that is as drunk by the guilty in Psalms 11. As in Revelations 14, it says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The raining of coals and the wicked point back to the just destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That city what was judged for their wickedness by being engulfed in flames out of, out of heaven. That was the portion of their cup. The cup of the wrath of God is frequently mentioned in Scripture. And in Psalms 75, 7 and 8, describes the justice and the wrath of God as a cup mixed for the wicked. It reads, But it is God who ex- executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours it out, and pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now there, that, that's the destination for all of us, since we are all sinners. We are all guilty before God and de- deserve His just wrath. Yet as Christians, we don't need to fear the wrath of God, because through Jesus, we've been delivered from it. And since God is just and His wrath must be settled, sin cannot be swept aside. But Jesus delivered us from this wrath by drinking that cursed cup for us. Our sin was eternally paid for by the cross um, on Jesus' sacrificial death. You can exchange a cup of the wrath of God for the cup of his beautiful inheritance, as David describes in Psalm 16, by placing your faith in his finished work on the cross. So that's, don't wait. If, if, this, if that doesn't describe you as, as one who has placed your faith in him, don't wait. Flee to, don't flee to the mountain and try to escape that. There is no escaping that we've seen. Run to the saving refuge of the Lord. One last thing I want to talk about on the wrath of God it is his to pour out. It's not ours. We're warned in Romans twelve nineteen. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are not to try to avenge ourselves or others when we've been sinned against. I know there are times where we might want to get back to someone for the wrong that they have done against you or even a loved one. <clears throat> but we're told here that it is for the Lord to repay Again, the wrath of God is mentioned by David as part of the reasons for his confidence in the Lord. And we too can can meditate on that and be humbled uh, by the wrath of God. And may that um, push us to to cling to his love and his grace all the more. Back in Psalms 11, we we, uh, finish in verse 7. It says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David concludes this section of his confidence in the Lord by looking at the favor that the Lord pours out on the righteous. While they may be overrun with sorrow or trials or attacked maliciously, the Lord will uphold them. Psalms 103.6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. In contrast to the wicked and their deeds receiving punishment and wrath, the righteous are loved by God as, as he reveals himself to him, himself to them, that they get to behold his face. Now think about this for a minute. When you go through trials or suffering or calamity or whatever it, it may be, um, the final phrase here is that we get to behold the face of God. Through suffering, we get to 
which God brings about to shape us and to, te- to test us, he's actually revealing himself and giving us opportunity to see more of him. So we get to see and experience more of God than we have before or maybe reminded of something that we've already learned and get to experience it afresh. So this is how David can say in the face of a personal calamity that the Lord is his refuge. This refuge, that we remind you, is the covenant-keeping God, holy and set apart, worthy of all worship, sovereignly ruling over all from heaven, seeing all things, testing all things to bring about that to his image. He is the all-powerful creator who providentially brings about his wrath and his justice that are inescapable for the wicked. And his love and his character are on full display for the righteous. So as we've studied the character and the attributes of God over these past four weeks, I pray that you are encouraged and that you have your antenna tuned to the attributes of God and you can be found on the pages of Scripture that you, as you are reading God's Word for yourself, that you would be able to ask yourself, like, where, what can I learn about God in this passage? How can I know Him better? How can I love Him more? How can I worship Him and pursue Him more? Pray that that is what we, uh, we have learned from this, these, these four weeks in this study. Let's pray. Oh, great mighty Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, I thank you that you are the, the sovereign and providential God who, who rules over all. Lord, and that we can find our refuge and our confidence in you. Lord, when, when trials arise, Lord, and calamity comes at us, Lord, we can say like David, is that the Lord is our refuge. I thank you for this time that we've had to study uh, in in Scripture. And I pray now, Lord, as we we go and and get to worship together um, from our hearts, Lord, we would sing just and be be a glorifying, glorifying act to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.